0: Behold, the sword of power,
1: Excalibur. To the Ogasha Galio Web Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel Comics series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week in episode 21, we're in flashback mode with Excalibur number 20, the Eye of the Beholder, which is a fill-in issue set prior to the Cross Time Caper. It is also the first issue of Excalibur not written by Chris Claremont. The creative team is Michael Higgins on writing, Ron Lim on pencils, Joe Rubinstein on inks, Glennis Oliver on colors, Augustin Mass on lettering, and Terry cavanaugh on editing. to the spang of the dragon! The sword! The the land. Yes, Merlin, that's it. Set the world to rights. Call the dragon. Mend the sword. Speak the charm of making. We are joined this week by a very dear friend of mine who I know is going to have a lot of thoughts and fun with this very wacky issue, who I will introduce in a moment. But first, your equally dear hosts. I am Dr. Anna Papard. I talk and write and occasionally tweet about superheroes and comics and pop culture and representation. I am the editor of an award-winning book called Supersex, Sexuality, Fantasy, and the Superhero, which is a hopefully useful line on my CV as I continue to pursue official employment as Kurt Wagner's PR manager. I am joined, as always, by Matt, take it away
2: hi my name is Christopher Maverick but you can call me mav I am many things I'm the host of another podcast Vox podcast where we talk about pop culture issues and and sex and gender and race and how all that runs together I'm a lifelong comic fan I'm a, a PhD student I'm an adjunct instructor at Mount Aloysius College and at um, at Duquesne University both in Pittsburgh or both in Pennsylvania. And uh, I'm very tired now because um, starting this week, we are back to having summer school in session. And it's weird because our our listeners, I don't know if they know that we record these out of order sometimes, so it's entirely possible that, like, in fact, probable that I'm going to sound way more alert on next week's show when I was still on vacation than I do on this week's show where I'm exhausted. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, that's how it is. uh, It's it's time travel that happens in podcasting and in cross-time capers, which this is not. (laughs) <laughs> um i thought we were going to do um the crusader x today that's what last issues said last issue said it would be crusader x <laughs> we've already
1: rec- we've already recorded crusader x we don't have to do it again i
2: know but like the but last issue issue 19 says next week I or know, next month is crusader x and it's not
1: <laughs> i know and then we got this issue instead which yeah. raises questions about where it fits historically as a fill-in but we'll talk about it Angie, yeah. take it away
0: Uh, I'm Andrew DeMann. I'm a lecturer at St. Jerome's University. Um, I'm the project lead for the Claremont Run. I'm the co-host of Three Panel Contrast, another podcast. Uh, And I don't like this issue because I like (laughs) Megan. And we'll probably talk about that.
1: We will talk about that. We will talk about that with you, Andrew, president of the Fans of Megan Fan Club.
0: It's just me. I'm also the only member. Oh so. <laughs>
1: that's, <laughs> that's true. I like Megan a lot. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. So we are joined, as I mentioned, by a very dear friend who I've been wanting to have on the pod since the beginning. And we finally found a good spot for her. We are thrilled to welcome Dr. Asha Jeffers. Welcome, Asha. Happy to be here. Asha's research and teaching specialties are 20th and 21st century literature and cultural production. She's an assistant professor at Dalhousie University, cross-appointed in the Gender and Women's Studies program. Her research focuses on literature about the children of immigrants, the second generation across national and ethnic lines. She's particularly interested in how second generation literature mobilizes the conventions of coming-of-age narratives, the relationship between myth, memory and history, and the representation of intergenerational and intragenerational relationships to produce future Future facing stories that suggest hope and possibility in trying times. Asha, I know that you're also an X Men fan. I know that you're a fan of X Men, the animated series, in particular. So I want to hear a little bit about your (laughs) X Men origin story. And I know you've dabbled in comics a little bit too, but I'm assuming right at the moment that this is your first issue of Excalibur.
3: Yes, it is definitely my first issue of Excalibur. I did not know it existed until you told me about it. So (laughs) (laughs) most of my kind of superhero history is through TV show and film. I never super got into superhero comics in their actual original comic form. uh, But I'm a big fan of all of the various other permutations. So yes, I am a big devotee of X-Men the Animated Series. I watched it all the time when I was a kid. I've rewatched it one and a half times as an adult. (laughs) So, and I mean, you know, like, I think that at the time when that series was airing, I was the prime age for it. I also think that, like, the the X-Men as a team has a lot of appeal to young people in general. I'm also black. I you know, I grew up in a home that had a framed picture of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King shaking hands, prominently displayed in our dining room. So I know
2: know that picture. I know exactly what that picture looks like. (laughs)
3: Did you have a black
2: Jesus?
3: (laughs) We did not have a black Jesus. Oh, you're missing out. Uh... So, you know, the the, the Professor X uh, magneto tension, friendship situation, I think that resonated in an interesting sort of way uh, with yeah, my world as a child. I think also, like many a small Black girl, I was very, very, like, happy about the existence of Storm, and she seemed very cool. I don't, like, I think, and this is something that Anna and I have talked about a bunch of times, who you relate to versus who you think is cool in a given media property because I don't imagine I don't think that as a child I related to Storm she was much too poised for my scrappy self to
1: <laughs> particularly identify with. But I did. I, I was a big fan. Other favorite characters from from that series or subsequent interpretations? I'm sort of curious about whether you're familiar with any of the characters that we have in Excalibur.
3: Yeah. I mean, I, I was a big, like many a child as well, Wolverine fan. I also remember quite liking gambit although upon re-watching that series
1: as an adult, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, different feelings
3: i mean I like, I, also,
1: I like how we all devolved into laughter because we know exactly what you mean i was like yeah. Yeah, a little creepy as an adult
3: but yeah
2: there's some light stalking going on yeah,
0: yeah.
3: yeah. various various shades of stalking throughout um I also, I mean, and you know, as an example of being a som- of being someone who primarily watched the TV version, as opposed to reading the comics, Jubilee was a character I really like. And I mean, she was a character who was specifically created for 90s kids to yeah. relate to. <laughs> so it worked. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, so in terms of, but in terms of the Excalibur characters, the only one I was really familiar with was uh your beloved kurt yeah so oh i do i i feel honor bound to mention on this podcast that the very first day i met anna i met her in a class and after that class i texted my friend to say i'm in class with a girl who dresses like a superhero <laughs> and this was entirely before knowing what she studied
2: Aww. i I mean, I I buy it. (laughs) Andrew, are you surprised at all? I'm
0: not surprised at all. I I hope it was like body armor and like really weird about the campus.
1: Well, I used to wear like, especially when I was in grad school, like a lot of, I feel like my standard uniform was get spandex disco pants from American Apparel and tank tops. And that was like my go-to. I remember I started wearing the American Apparel spandex as a Sue Storm Halloween costume. And it eventually just like, I just got more and more colors of it and it made it into my regular wardrobe and became kind of my look. So like, yeah, that makes, that makes perfect sense.
2: I'm, I'm a little sad there was no cape. I mean... <laughs>
1: I, I do. I do have at least one cape that I used to wear with tights and shorts, and then it was sort of a '60s cape with a little hood on it. It was super cute. But yeah, I got all. It's this gonna stuff. be one of
2: those episodes, so you know, <laughs> so so, so, the, so the listeners know where we're at here. <laughs>
1: anyway, I appreciate that memory. I'm honored by that memory. Um, I want to get into some of your first impressions of this particular issue, but I think we'll do our little summary and come back to it because I know we're all going to have some maybe strong first impressions about this issue, and I'm going to stand up for it just a little bit so you can look forward to that. But let's get through the summary and we'll come back to it. So as always, thanks to all the lovely listeners reading along with the pod, and I'm going to resist the urge to apologize for the plot summary this time and, and just get into it. We begin our tale on Arthur's seat in Edinburgh, Scotland where a pair of tourists are taking photographs of the castle until suddenly there's an earthquake as the couple fights with each other they begin to glow until they're enveloped by a yellow substance that cools to form stone then other stones appear opening a stone circle that allows none other than the demon druid to arrive on earth meanwhile at the excalibur lighthouse which we haven't seen in a long time in this comic kurt is trying to console megan who's very upset over brian's general Brianness. this is from the period where he was having an affair with courtney although i believe this is actually sadder courtney in this issue And does some tearful shape-shifting Before lashing out at Kurt She calls him a monster And it's completely heartbreaking In London, Brian is seen seeking solace with the aforementioned sadder Courtney. Megan, flying overhead, sees them together, which doesn't improve her mood. She keeps flying all the way to Edinburgh, where she encounters the demon druid. She turns into Godzilla to fight him, but he quickly takes control of her. Elsewhere, Rachel and Kitty are enjoying a night out on the town. After they discover the bar, they were heading to less than the stuff of their dreams. They see an unnatural glow over Arthur's seat and head off to investigate. Kitty defeats demon druid by phasing through him, which frees Megan and the tourists. Demon druid disappears and everything is solved, or is it? Back at the lighthouse, everyone has an unsettled night. Megan's pining for Brian, Kurt's pining for Megan, and Kitty, always one to look a gift horse in the mouth, stays up late tinkering, trying to figure out what exactly happened at Arthur's seat. She falls asleep at her desk, but Brian, getting a rare chance to show off his scientific know-how, finishes her mysterious project for her. In the light of day, they find out that the demon druid is now feeding off the cooling towers at the Darkmoor nuclear research facility, and using that energy to build a new stone circle. Brian flies off to stop him, leaving the rest of the team relying on Kurt to teleport them to the scene, along with Kitty's untested gadget. Rachel prevents Brian from attacking the druid so that Kitty can tell him her plan. She uses Widget to open a dimensional portal and convinces the demon druid to depart peacefully for his own world instead of destroying theirs. As he leaves, the team celebrates their bloodless victory and reprimands Brian. Okay, so I actually, as I said, have kind of an affection for this issue. Like, there's definitely stuff to criticize, especially the portrayal of Megan, and we will talk about it, but it's got for me a little bit of, like, an early excalibur grade hits feel to it which I feel like 20 issues in I'm almost nostalgic for that we have been on the cross time caper for a while um but I'll, we can talk about some more of my feelings about it I want to get back to okay I know I know I know but I want to get to <laughs> I want to get to Ash's first impressions first and then you can wreck me over the coals Andrew I promise so asha just in general you're jumping in here as your first issue of excalibur we don't have a regular artist we don't have a regular writer it's gonna be although that's not really gonna make a big impression on you since it's your first issue but just in general did this issue make any sense to you and did you enjoy this issue like at all
3: so i did enjoy it also it frequently didn't make any sense to me (laughs) I, i appreciated that it had a a spirit of adventure a spirit of randomness. It felt like, to me... Mm Uh, I, at the beginning, I was a little bit worried that I wouldn't like it because the the kind of diving directly into Megan's seeming body issues, which I didn't have context for, I was a bit like, oh, is this going to be tiresome? But <laughs> as one, because I, I did some Googling and I got better context for where Megan's coming from and that helped me understand the issue a lot better. Uh, so, I, you know, the lack of context definitely did play a role in my initial reaction to it. But. But also, I think that rather than coming across, as I read on, it stopped coming across as like, oh, girl feels she's not pretty, to uh, more of an understanding of Megan having what I like to call Groucho Marx syndrome. <laughs> like the idea that she doesn't want to be in any clubs that will have her so you know the, like her the way that her own ambivalence about her mutanthood affects her relationships with other people that actually did end up being very interesting to me in a much more fulsome way than i initially thought it was going to
1: yeah well i mean i probably should let andrew respond to this and then come back to some other first impressions because i know that you want to talk about the issues that you have with megan here andrew and yeah go ahead
0: okay so like i I think there's a value to this um (laughs) wow (laughs) i've often i've pitched i've designed a few courses over the course of my career Um, and one of the courses that i haven't actually tried to put forth in front of an undergraduate committee is a course on bad books but i think every english major should read bad books and just like read a bunch of like Goosebumps and Harlequin and stuff like that. Cause all we ever look at is the good books. Uh, and I think you need the contrast, right? Uh, and I'm getting that here. This is season five of X-Men, the animated series to, to speak in <laughs> Ash's language or frame of reference. It's not good to speak in Anna's sort of frame of reference there. This isn't like going to see the old Excalibur you knew and love. This is a cover band. It's <laughs> all the things that are sort of Excalibur on the surface with all the underlying character dynamics and tensions and complexities and nuances stripped away. And nowhere is that more evident than with Megan who is a deeply symbolic character that can really, really speak to the issue of, like, toxic relationships. Um, And here, it's just, it's it's a one-note stereotype that denies her all agency that she might have otherwise built in earlier issues. But as I said, there's a positive there because that kind of, I don't know, foregrounds to me how subtle and delicate Megan is as a character to write, even so much so that Claremont doesn't always pull it off. But, But when he does, wow, I love the metaphors that she engages with. And here we're not we're not getting that. We're we're getting this very superficial version that is is kind of antithetical to what she is, in in my perspective at least.
1: You didn't have any feelings about? I like that she yells at Kurt here, and that's not something she does elsewhere. And I actually really like that scene.
2: I don't believe it, scene. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> so here, so I have feelings about it too. I I would like that she yelled at Kurt if there were a character. To, so this story, as best I can tell, happens sometime around, I'm gonna say Excalibur 9, 10, somewhere in there. Yeah, it's I before the right. cross it's before the cross time caper, but after they have widget, which is like a period of like a week in their in their lives. The fact that Widget's activated here is weird and he shouldn't be. I don't know. So, but like just trying to place it in there. Megan, the person who existed at that point in her history, does not have the moral fiber to yell at Kurt. She barely has the moral fiber to, you know, say, I'm sad to Brian. It would be interesting. I mean, um, so Anna, you just said he, you know, she never does it again. Right. And that would make it interesting. If if there were a point where Megan, who is, you know, a, a woman in an abusive relationship, frankly, and, you know, but trying to make it work, trying to make it work, trying to make it work. Her upstairs roommate has a crush on her and he's her friend, but then he's been hitting on her. And then she just has this, has too much. It's, an, you know, it's enough. And she blows up at him. There's character development there. I would love to see that. But since this is a filling issue, that's never mentioned again. So let's not worry about it. it. Like, it, it's an interesting character, but it's not the character of Megan that we've. Had thus far, and that makes it weird for me in a way that um, Andrew, you said a lot. You said it was well. Anna called it greatest hits. I'm more on Andrew's side. It's an impression. um Michael Higgins is the writer of this, and he does have experience. He's been the letterer on several of our issues, and now he's the writer for this issue. And somebody else letters it for some reason. I don't know why. Augustine Mass, <laughs> who like like. Michael Higgins knows how to letter things. He's been the letterer, but you know, he gets promoted to writer for one issue and some, and then there's a guest letter and it's weird. Ron Lim's done a fill in issue. His artwork is much better here. I love yeah, Ron Lim's artwork sure. in this I think Ron Lim, again, is from when he was on, before, when we talked about him before, is one of my favorite artists. I he didn't like He does some his very previous. pretty,
1: he does some very pretty yeah. hair in this issue. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he's, True. And
2: he's, and he's got, you know, he, this is him trying to figure out these characters. And I think he, I think he probably drew this and had time to draw it. And they are like, we'll pl- we'll publish it whenever we publish it as opposed to that last time where he was like we need you to be done with this tomorrow you know um so there's th- there are things i like but so much of it felt like um i didn't like kitty's character i didn't like megan's character i didn't like brian's character i thought he was a jerk the wrong way this felt like somebody doing an impression of claremont and it also felt like someone doing an impression of Silver Age Marvel?
3: Can I ask a question yeah. about Brian's characterization? Because I do, like, to me, uh, you know, as uh, a post-colonialist, the idea that Captain Britain's main character trait is that he sucks is kind of appealing. Like, I, uh-huh. I enjoy <laughs> the fact mm-hmm. that it seems like Captain Britain's whole deal is that he's bad. Yes. Um. But I was a bit surprised that that was the case. <laughs> so is, it, is, is he in the midst of an arc where he sucks less or is he <laughs> he's a trying jerk all to the way through less. okay okay he's a, he's a complicated
2: jerk See, that's the thing he's so he's, he's a traumatized jerk. He's, yeah he, he, so he's a jerk he's an asshole dealing okay so for backstory because we haven't mentioned this on our show in a while at this point in time brian just saw his twin sister murdered on international television like three months ago. yikes Okay. Like he's he's and and having had lots of superhero trauma before that, that broke him. He just becomes massively broken. And, he and becomes rel- an out yeah.
1: Relevant to Ash's question, like, he specifically had trauma related to his obligations as kind of the oh, Captain yeah. Britain character, oh, yeah. right? Like, he yeah. sort of died and got resurrected because he has to be Captain Britain, and he's yeah. also got this thing where he's, like, actually a scientist, but has to take on this, like, traditional Superhero masculine role, which yeah. isn't necessarily huh. what he wants to do. Yeah. So he does have a complicated backstory, mm-hmm. which, yeah, it is lost. He is very this broken. <laughs> yeah. It, it, he, right.
2: he is, he, yeah, he is a very broken man. Broken so much so that he becomes a jerk, he becomes an alcoholic, he becomes an abusive boyfriend, and he is a jerk, but Brian's not stupid, and this book made him look stupid, and it made him look stupid in a way like he's an asshole. He's not an idiot, and that bugged me because it 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 just it cheapened the complicated character that I enjoy hating, and 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 there's a lot of um like very quick you know I mean so Megan says for instance at one point oh Courtney Ross is like she she'll probably be fat or something like it, it's just. It's very cheap writing like 60s comics. It's writing like Silver Age comic by somebody writing in the 90s who's not good at doing either of those things, at least not for this issue.
1: I think maybe what I should have said is that it sounds it like reads to me like an Excalibur pastiche like almost like it's a comedy version of it that's sort of a parody and I think I like enjoy it on that level like I mean everything that you're saying is completely true and I don't think the hystericalness of Megan is defensible on any level but at the same time like I always like have an affection for this one just as a I don't know it just reads sort of like a parody fan fiction or something to me and I don't include it in my mind like within the continuity of it and yet I'm sort of like I don't know I I like I almost I almost like the silver ageiness of it it's like when people do those covers of like a modern comic but do it up in silver mm-hmm. age style and like that's amusing even though you know it can be politically problematic and i sort of i think that that's where some of my enjoyment of this issue comes from because it's just like every single beat of this is like bonkers it megan totally attacking demon, at demon right. druid and she's mm-hmm. like i'm gonna be godzilla now and i'm like that's terrible if we're gonna read it <laughs> on a deep character level of megan because i and really yet, that's am a also monster. Yeah. that's also really funny though but,
0: but <laughs> like, there's no self-awareness to it though right so how how can you read it as pastiche without self-awareness? Unless I guess, I'm missing yeah.
1: It. yeah. I mean,
3: I, I don't know that I could, t- again, because I'm not that familiar with the series. I don't know how much I can tell how self-aware it is. I mean, certainly, you know, the, the Godzilla thing, but also the let me slip into something more comfortable. You know, a like bikini with a cape is a very <laughs> like that moment <laughs> has a very old timey but- feel to it.
2: I thought all women slept in that. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that normal? <laughs> if I've only read sixties sixties uh, romance comics, I believe that that's it. <laughs>
1: Well, can I come back to you, Asha, about some of the love triangle dynamic and sort of its relation to romance tropes? Because we haven't talked about sort of the romance elements of Excalibur in a while. Like, arguably, I think it's because Cross Time Caper is like more concerned with sex than romance. And one of the things that I think can be really productive about sort of merging romance and superhero comics is that you have a possibility to potentially complicate or subvert both of them. You know, the addition of something domestic and connotatively feminine into a traditionally masculine space can do certain things for us, and the addition of women who have superpowers and kick butt into like a space that sometimes but not always, you know, presents women in very sort of traditional roles. I don't want to say that romance always does. I guess romance is really complicated, but at the very least doesn't usually... Although there are subgenres of of sort of supernatural romance and stuff these days that do that, but at least in the '80s didn't usually include superpowered women, right? So we still have you know a subversion of that just on that basic level, right? So I was curious, Asha, like, did you see sort of like tropes of the romance genre in this comic that surprised you or interested you? Is that part of what you're kind of responding to with the Megan thing? Like, does it seem like something you recognized from other types of stories, or was it something that surprised you in this comic?
3: Right. Well, I mean, I think. Like, I think that the the part of the appeal for X-Men for me has always been that element to it. There's always romance in X-Men. Uh, so I wasn't surprised that that was also the case in Excalibur. I found this particular love triangle, or I guess square, not yeah, yeah. the most exciting because it seemed to me that... The dynamics were too obviously the trope of, I love this woman who is in love with a man who's so kind of comically bad for her. So I found, you know, I like feeling sympathetic toward both Megan and Kurt was a bit hard because both of them are behaving, at least in this issue, in such kind of overtly self defeating ways. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I mean. That's <laughs> so, I mean, that. you know, it, it, it is the most it, one of the most classic romance tropes, the love triangle, the woman who's in love with the bad man, but I didn't find this version of it an exceptionally interesting version
1: at least in this issue. Mm -hmm. I mean, how did you feel like the superpowers kind of played into it? Like, were you able to get any sense of the ways that they impact that story? I mean, did it just not make it interesting at all because the ways that the superpowers were mobilized just kind of fed into the trope? I mean, I'm curious about some of the body stuff that goes on with Megan here and kind of some of the visual depictions of her. You know, we have her depicted overtly monstrous in a way that we haven't had an Excalibur sort of for a while. And then we Mm -hmm. also, I am interested in the scene where she yells at Kurt too, in the sense that here's my minor defense of it. We haven't seen this dynamic with Megan and Kurt before where we see her being afraid of what he represents for her. Mm. She's presented as like a fear of something she would become here because he is a monster all the time and he can't change that appearance, right? And I see Megan's fear of that being reflected here in a way that I find interesting and then she lashes out at him and we get his like very tragic reaction to that and that is a dynamic that we don't see explored throughout Excalibur that I think is an actually interesting elements of their relationship that I would have loved to see explored more. And I'm not saying it's explored well here, but just sort of like that element of it interests me.
2: Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I agree there.
1: Yeah. I mean, I also, I particularly, that is
3: the super aspect was the thing that elevated it a bit, because I do think that the idea that her physical body reflects her emotional space, I, I did think that that was cool. I think it's interesting That her first monstrous form is like the rock faced guy from the Fantastic Four, whose name I forgot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like
1: like the thing? Yes. (laughs) Yeah,
3: yeah. Yeah, um, like the thing but with hairy elbows like I thought that that was an interesting <laughs> choice of, of representation especially that one frame where she's kind of the thing with hairy elbows but great what an incredible figure you know like the way that there was a kind of mashing together of her kind of sense of herself as monstrous but also her self or, or the way that she forms herself into a kind of traditionally attractive feminine shape as well so I did think that when she was flying away and you saw those things combined on one body I did think that that was representationally very interesting because I guess based on this issue I did assume in fact that the comic explored her ambivalence more because I do like it's definitely not even subtext but straight text that her reaction against Kurt is about him being like this is where I got the Groucho Marx thing from her reaction to him is based on the fact that his mom monstrosity in her eyes is a reflection of her own but it's also the fact like it's also clear that she is attracted to monstrosity as well her kind of feeling about herself and her feeling about other people who appear in this kind of non-normative way is fundamentally ambivalent isn't just a, a, a straightforward disgust like she does feel a certain attraction to the big blue guy who appears when she refers to him as virile like it was very clear that she was into it (laughs) yeah
1: Mm -hmm. that's interesting oh man and he's like sort of this is going too far with it but yeah he's like blue brian isn't he like demon druid in this comic Uh, yeah I'm going too far with it, but it occurred to me as you were saying that. I mean, you
3: could then argue that he's a bit like half Brian, half nightcrawler.
1: I know, but I think it's going too far with it, but it did occur to me. (laughs) Because it's not like he has any like similarities on a character level.
3: Right. But physically, yeah, like so, you know, physically he is also doesn't look like a human because he's not. And that immediately does appeal to her, even if she's afraid of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, Mm -hmm. I like what you're saying about the ambivalence. Like, I mean, I totally get Andrew, you like everything that you're complaining about with Megan here, but I, I just still like I'm going to defend that moment of ambivalence as being interesting and something that we don't always get with the you know, as Asha said, like the quadrangle or whatever love thing that we have here, because I still wish that we'd had some of her feelings about desiring Kurt and being repelled by Kurt explored more. And yeah, like that element of her being repelled by him is something that I think is the main thing I remember about this issue. And I kind of put a lot of the other stuff to the side because like, I don't want to think about things I don't like. (laughs) I don't know. You can respond to that or not. Yeah.
2: I just... I I will say Asha's point the way she is breaking down her impression of this standalone issue do sort of lend a little credence to anna's claim that this is like a you know it's trying to be a greatest hits of the of the early days because even just the things that you said in your you know your analysis you talked about romance comics you talked about the monstrous feminine which we've literally done episodes of about each of that with uh with sydney and with with sam Langus with sam we did episodes literally about those two things and if that's translating to, to asha 30 years later, then it is there, right? Like, they are clearly trying to pull on those same themes. I just think it's kind of an inferior version of what we've just spent 20 issues watching. I think that if she's picking up those things, then... Based on, like, the episodes we did with Sydney, the episodes we did with Sam on romance comics, on on monstrous comics, those themes are translating across 30 years, you know, so that's something, I guess. Well,
1: can I ask Asha about her read on Kurt in this issue, since, you know, like, you know that I have the thing for him. Anyway, um, but yeah, he is weird in this comic because he's being a little bit more of the nice guy trope than I think he often is in Excalibur, and I've got feelings about that, I've complained... <laughs> vociferously about Mav comparing him to Ducky in a previous episode although I don't think that's completely an invalid comparison I just really don't want him to be Ducky like as in pretty and pink Ducky but I was curious <laughs> about your response to it as someone who I know knows some of these romance tropes and stuff were you getting kind of that nice guy vibe from him I mean did you like him in this issue or was he just a total tool in this issue to you?
3: Um, I, I did like him in this issue I mean I also have a soft spot for Nightcrawler like not nearly on the same scale that you have um, but <laughs> But, you know, the, the you film where he was where where his character was introduced, that's like one of my favorite ones. And I like I do genuinely really like him as a character. I think that in this issue, I don't think he crosses the line for me into nice guy territory. I mean, I think that because I do think that there is I think it's important when we're talking about the nice guy trope to be careful that we don't just like, label anyone who has an unrequited crush and is sad about it mm-hmm. as a nice guy like i mean it's certainly possible to have that kind of pining that coexists with friendship in a way that doesn't feel manipulative which i which is i think the aspect that makes the nice guy trope so dangerous you know he is he's trying to help her he you know is not in this in this issue exceptionally good at it you know it's it's certainly not anyone's favorite thing to hear when they're freaking out that they're not being rational so he doesn't have a particularly strong approach in terms of helping her deal with her like intense emotional moment but he does come across as well-meaning as opposed to trying to kind of use her bad relationship for his own ends
1: yeah, I mean, I was curious about how he would read to everybody in this issue, just because he, he doesn't read as out of character to me in this issue, but definitely sort of yeah. more involved with Megan's sort of emotional state than he often is, because he's often more of a backseat with it, with just the odd sort of moment. But I don't know, did, did the rest of you have thoughts about it? Because we talked about this sort of tendency with Kurt in the past and whether we read him as manipulative in this triangle or, or not. And Andrew, maybe I'll go to you because we haven't heard from you for a while. Um, I don't know. I, I think...
0: For me, one of the issues I'm having, just in terms of creating continuity with the earlier element, the idea that that a lot of Kurt and Megan's relationship has been specifically about Megan becoming like Kurt physically and emotionally to Mm -hmm. some extent, and and that sort of like like literal shape-shifting, the idea that she would, as you kind of suggested, Anna, see that as something horrible that that he is you know poisoning her with i kind of hate that but but i also see how that kind of works with megan's previously established continuity as someone who was raised basically as like a hideous werewolf that everyone was afraid of so so there's ways in which i think it can work i I don't know how far we're reaching to make it work um but i don't know as i said or sorry as you said I, i i do think there's something there that's interesting to explore
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm interested on the level of, you know, because my man, I complained back in the thing about rapist Nazi nightcrawler about how I thought that was a bit of a misunderstanding of like how he's approaching the Megan relationship because he's looking for romantic validation. But I think he's just also looking for validation validation, you know, because I mean, to see something of himself reflected in her, like literally in terms of her transforming into him. But I mean, also, I talked a little bit before about, (laughs) you know, my ideal read of how you can make this relationship interesting would be that he has a fascination with shapeshifter and you know his mother is a shapeshifter he doesn't know that yet but You know, it's something he's shown an interest in in the past. The first time he meets her, he's fascinated, right? So, I mean, looking for validation in terms of like, if she would choose monstrousness as a way to present herself, how validating would that be for him in terms of his self acceptance, right? And the fact that she rejects that and rejects that very vociferously here in a way that is just so heartbreaking. I don't know. I think that there's a lot of potential interest there. And I see what you're saying, Andrew, that it's kind of awful for her to reject him on that level. But I also find it believable given what her story is. And then I find his sort of attraction to the idea of her sort of believable on um, that level of like does she reject her monstrous does she not reject her monstrous and he's trying to figure that out which is a reflection of him and it, it is like potentially the nice guy trope but like I think it's more complicated than that because of his difference and kind of some of that affecting it beyond kind of concerns of gender I mean everything's always bound up in gender or sex or whatever and yet there's an added component of this here where Kurt's fascination that I think is potentially interesting and I, you're absolutely right that i'm reading way too much into this i'm fan fictioning <laughs> this issue to make it work but and it that is 100 percent true yeah, yeah. Is, <laughs> yeah. Is, That's this issue is
2: fanfic i mean this yeah. issue you said it this issue reads like someone inserting a story into their favorite excalibur arc a year later which is what this is. It's a year after it should have been. And someone went and inserted, you know, here's where I here's what I think was happening um, in Harry Potter behind the scenes. Right. Like, that's what this is. And like I don't think it's the worst thing ever. I just think it's <laughs> weird. Like, we've we've read other comics that I've been like. We have other episodes of our show where I've been much harsher on the writing than I than I'm being on Higgins here. I just, it feels like an impression more than a story.
3: Right. And I mean, I do think that as, as I was reading it, there were, when I read it the first time, there were a lot of little threads where I was, I was like, I have no idea where this thread leads. So, which is why I felt the need to do some extra Googling. And so when I did read Megan's backstory, because she was a character I wasn't familiar with, like the fact that she's supposed to have grown up like Romany and, and as a werewolf child, like that combination, I think really increased my interest in her character arc too, because it's the idea of her being an outsider amongst outsiders. Like the degree to which she's alienated from society is very very layered. So I think that the fact that she finds embracing her monstrosity so difficult makes a lot more sense to me with that kind of contextualization. But of course, that is like, that is necessarily a kind of contextualization that the issue isn't giving me that I'm forcing into the issue.
1: Yeah, because I mean, just the way that it's presented here, it is kind of a very generic woman is hysterical about being jealous of her guy and everything and yeah. that's not speaking to that complexity that you're bringing up right where she has this physical difference she has a racial difference she has an ethnic difference and she has all these levels i mean this is a character who's like been in a concentration camp before right she has a really interesting backstory and that's not necessarily a play here unless we choose to read that into it
3: yeah, well,
0: I think one of the other complications too that, that's directly relevant to this issue is the extent to which Kurt is complicit in Brian's affair.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, we've talked about that before and like honestly the situation in this issue I don't understand. I don't know how you could have Brian openly cheating on Megan coming back and hanging out and living with her surrounded by her friends. Like I believe in a real world scenario Brian would absolutely get his ass kicked by every member of Excalibur for anything close to that. It's do you
2: read this as as Megan found out for sure that Brian was cheating or no or see this reads like she knows. Oh, God, yeah. Brian's been cheating on yeah. me with Courtney, and Courtney. That's she been that doesn't. Was bad. Yeah. She doesn't know. Like the, in the context of the story, I don't know if she ever knows she's jealous of Courtney, but she thinks she's being irrational. She doesn't what? know Brian's actually having an affair. I think she's, she knows. I, I think
0: it's strongly suggested she knows in some well, of the yeah. earlier
2: issues. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah, but, very confusing. Right. Because but here really she's is. looking at them. She's watching them kiss. Yeah. And she says, I can't bear to watch anymore. And then he comes home later. So yeah. she knows. You couldn't we miss know it. that Kurt knows. That Brian told Kurt because he's an idiot. I don't like so we know Kurt knows. And why and Kurt has his moments here where he's thinking, you know, you don't deserve a problem like Brian. You know, why won't she just? Just leave him, you know, uh, Ducky or no, right? At some point, you've got to tell the girl, look, he's cheating on you. Let it go. You know, let him go. Kick him out, right? Because I, it, it feels weird, and it feels weird for Brian to know, for Kurt to know, for Megan to know, and frankly, probably Rachel and Kitty
0: know. Oh, they absolutely <laughs> do. It's not, right. It's not it's not even implied it's there
3: yeah so now i'm kind of infinitely more confused because based on just <laughs> reading helping. this issue right. i assumed that what was the case is that she and brian were not in a serious relationship oh no
2: no they live together yep. they that is unders- wild. <laughs> that is, yeah that is wild that is his living yeah. that is his living girlfriend brian's big struggle at this point is i am very sick of my needy supermodel superhero girlfriend so i'm going to go <laughs> hang out with my supermodel banker girlfriend that's where brian's headspace is right now
1: oh that's a hard yikes
2: yeah yeah. Yeah.
3: (laughs) so
1: (laughs) yeah yeah. the the, the big round bed in the scene where like one of the scenes where kurt and megan are talking that's that's megan and brian's bed
0: oh no (laughs) can i request that that's a hard yikes be one of the pull quotes for our twitter account
1: (laughs) (laughs) absolutely okay one pr manager kurt note I can see how he's like <laughs> in a bit of a difficult position here, though, because if he does tell like Megan about the affair, isn't he being almost more of a nice guy? Because that actually seems manipulative for him no. to be the one telling her. No, that's no, that's a friend. <laughs> Yeah, someone, true, yeah. I mean, that's true. Well,
2: in that, I, I get you're you're saying he's conflicted because he doesn't want to be the one to break them up because he wants her. And yeah, I get that. But she's watching them. You know, he knows that she knows. There's, there's no secrets anymore. At this point yeah they all know so i don't know it's emotional
0: know. torture at this point
2: yeah and it becomes and it becomes and it feels uncomfortable to me in a way that
3: yeah, I, I was just going to say that it does make me less sympathetic to Kurt's character because he does kind of early on suggest that she is being irrational. He he does say, "Oh, I'm yeah, sure that it's is fine. bad." Oh. So yeah. the fact that he has that line, yeah. like that line, made me assume that he oh, didn't know. I thought so,
2: that is line was true. about him, but I, th- I think he's saying you're not being rational when you're saying that you're ugly and you're it's your fault and blah blah.
3: blah. No, but he he says something about it's you know. Oh, I'm sure it's nothing. Like he he does say something that suggests that she's overreacting to. Yeah, she she he literally does say, but maybe you're overreacting. Yeah, Yeah, that's weird. That's that's kind of how I read it too. Yeah, Yeah.
2: he totally knows Brian's gaslighting. Yeah, Brian. Like, not only does Kurt suspect (laughs) Brian, uh, Kurt is the only one that Brian has told. I'm gonna go having an affair right now because because Megan's too needy.
1: Oh, I failed as his PR manager. Yeah, I was blinded. <laughs> I was blinded by his sexy pajamas and I like, wanted to defend him. But he's just like digging a deeper and deeper hole in this conversation. Mm-hmm. He does have sexy pajamas, though. We can
3: all agree There's on that. They're
0: stranded <laughs> buccaneer pajamas.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
2: There's a lot. Oh there's a lot of sexy. I mean, when they, when Brian comes back, they're all just kind of hanging out in, in PJs because he's got his buccaneers on. And, and Megan is once again in one of the 90s that she hangs always out. sleeps in. And yet, and yet, and yet, well, I mean, because, it, again, this is that thing from before where Kurt's like, well, she doesn't really sleep in that. You know, she's only doing that for Brian. As far as we know, she really does always sleep in these. <laughs> because that's how we always see her so i don't know
1: let's talk about a different strand of romance which is what happens with kitty and rachel in this issue because this i think is one of the most interesting things in this issue is that it kind of seems like they're going on a date and i was very intrigued by this given i've complained in the past that some of the queer context with kitty and rachel is not as explicit as it could be and we've talked about obviously the restrictions of the comics code and what they could get away with and you know this is a series where we had Kitty stepping completely inside Rachel and everybody getting cream pie. So it's not like this hasn't been there. Right. But at the same time, they're going on a date, right? Like, I mean, Asha, I was curious about you reading it because you don't have all of this kind of fan in context that like we have for approaching these two characters. Did it seem quite queer to you? Or did was that something that sort of didn't stand out to you about this issue?
3: So it didn't stand out to me, I think that might be because my perception was that Kitty is a child and that Rachel is an Mm -hmm. adult. Yeah. I, is Rachel yes, an they're, adult? They're, they're
0: narrowly, but Ra-
2: yeah. Rachel, Rachel's like 18, maybe 19. Kitty's oh, like 15, okay. maybe 16. So they are, yes, technically, but they're close enough that they could reasonably be dating. Okay. Like, okay. And, I, and when they met, Rachel would have been underage. When, when they met, Rachel would have been 16 and Kitty would have been 14.
3: Okay. Because I, for because I, I think I perceived Rachel as more in the kind of 25 range. I thought of this as a sort of I, I read much more of a kind of big sister vibe, especially because I fully didn't understand what happened at the bar. Like they open the door <laughs> yeah. and they look really shocked, but then when you look inside, it looks incredibly banal.
2: Yeah, I don't know either, I and mean, I've read this many <laughs> I mean, times. There's a pentagram <laughs> <around laughs> on the
0: ceiling, but
3: right. But Other I mean, that,
0: the... <laughs> definitely banal
3: yeah uh, uh,
0: which is a weird juxtaposition
2: (laughs) Okay, okay okay let's let's do this here because yeah i don't know that i think it's a date so much as i think it could be read as a date but also they are good friends it could just be read as you know what Let's go out and hang out at a pub without the boys. It would be nice to go and get away. So I could believe that. It is weird because the only thing that I can tell is weird about this bar or problematic about this bar at all is that there is a pentagram on yep, the ceiling. Exactly. And okay, oh hell, witchcraft. And okay, at this point, they're, you know, they're not at Inferno yet. They can't be, or maybe they are, but Ilyana is Kitty's best friend. Kitty's literal best friend in the world is a demon sorceress from another dimension right. who deals in black magic. She, she cannot possibly
0: with be freaked out by a pentagram. Specifically. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay, I read it as kind of like they go into this bar and they're like, this is a creepy dive bar of the wrong variety, and I don't want to be in this bar in my, my slinky cocktail dress heroes. and we need to leave.
0: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I guess. That doesn't mean you want to hang around with those no, people. No, I,
1: well, no, i
2: mean is that what's happening because i just thought i thought they were scared and if and if kitty's scared i'm like you've been to space you know, what are you doing? <laughs> i i
1: i definitely like read it from a female book experience perspective of like i've been in this situation no, before sure, where not. you're all dressed yeah. up and like you go in the wrong bar and you're like shit no way we're
2: not <laughs> you hanging out here you it's just gross dudes okay if it's gross dudes then then i buy it but i i just thought but the bar was supposed to be scary but
1: here's my queer context reading of it they're going out together and like rachel's always dress sexy and like kitty is not but that's still very kitty they're going to a place called the witchery which they expect to be one thing and then it's filled oh, with creepy dudes yeah. so it kind of seems like they were looking uh, for a certain kind of bar sure. and this isn't the certain kind of bar sure. so like it's pretty easy to queer code this.
3: Well, That's true although I again like to kind of speak to why I read it in this big sister little sister way Rachel drags her away in an incredibly mm. momly way Yeah, like she's holding her kitty's kind of like looks like she's gonna throw herself to the ground in the grocery store like her body posture is (laughs) incredibly unsexy
1: this is true and I mean one of the things with the kitty racial relationship too is that racial does often call kitty kiddo like in kind of a motherly way and I think that that can interfere with queer readings of these characters because even though they are very close in age technically there can be a hierarchy between them that I find can interfere with it in Excalibur and I think that's a, a fair criticism to make
2: I also think, though, that Rachel does that on purpose. Right. I have always read it that way because so even if I don't assume a queer relationship between them, if I just like if I am reading this at this point, I know that Rachel's only two years older than Kitty, maybe. So to me, the kiddo thing is the I'm going to like not belittle you like she doesn't like her, but like she is putting Kitty in her. I'm grown up and you're not kind of place. I think she intentionally says that to make herself seem more mature.
1: Yeah. Because yeah. Rachel,
2: because frankly, Rachel's not. Like, Kitty is by far more mature than Rachel is, yeah. even with that two-year age difference.
0: There's also a, a pretty big metatextual thing happening here, too. This is about Claremont. She says, if the things that freaky writer told me about this place are true, and then they go to a witchcraft place. Claremont was, was known to practice Wicca, yeah. um, and he was known for being, well, freaky, for lack of a better term. Higgins has been working <laughs> With Claremont for a long time.
2: Yeah. I'm yeah. envisioning
0: a scenario where Claremont brought Higgins out to something and Higgins decided to <laughs> include it in this issue.
2: So you think he just wrote
0: a real life event? 100%. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but I mean, queer context again, he also knew that Claremont had an affection for wanting to pair those two characters up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, interesting.
3: Is, this is not precisely on the queer reading, but it is about Rachel. Is there a backstory to her like clavicle spikes or you know, the way, like her, the way that her costume has those spikes? There is, there hmm. is indeed.
1: So... <laughs> <laughs> So she is the alternate universe daughter of Cyclops and Jean Grey. And so she's from the days of future past reality. In that reality, she was turned into what's called a mutant hound in which she was psychologically and physically manipulated, tortured and made to hunt down other mutants. And this is a sort of redux of the costume that she was made to wear as a hound. That costume was black. This costume is red. So It has to do with kind of her trauma, and we've talked about it on the pod before, as, you know, there's an arborness to her and sort of, you know, her trying to live through that trauma and her trying to deal with that. So, like, it's bound up in that. I won't, like, prescribe a specific reading of it, but it's bound up in that for sure. Also,
2: BDSM is cool, and that's why they did it. (laughs) (laughs) That's part. That's also part of why, I think. But, yeah, dual-layered meaning, I think.
1: There's a lot going on. I mean, one other, like, queer context thing is just the scene where Kitty is working on the device back at the lighthouse after the initial encounter with Demon Druid. We get a really interesting panel where, like, Rachel says, it's times like this that it's difficult to resist the urge to read her thoughts, but I can't. I have to respect her privacy. And that is way more kind of emotional than we usually see Rachel in terms of her interactions with Kitty. So I just, like, again, just wanted to bring it up. This is, I think, for me, one of the aspects of this conversation that i found the most redeemably interesting but anyway
3: oh do, although on a, on a kind of queer point a, coming at it a bit sideways i do think the fact that kitty penetrates demon druid and that makes her understand him better was an interesting reason was an interesting moment From a kind of sexual symbolism point of view, like the fact that he's he has this very like ecstatic face when she phases through him, that to me in in some ways was kind of the queerest moment
1: that I picked up on. That is an interesting panel because their faces parallel each other too, and they're making the same expression, so they're like physically merged in some sense. And and I think
2: Lim is experiment. Lim almost certainly is trying to do the kinds of experimentation with sexual metaphor that Davis does. Like, I, I, I do think that's intentional. I don't want to leave the the scene where Kitty's tinkering just yet because I do think some other important stuff happens there. Sure, go ahead. Which is your point, the thing that you're pointing out, when you say you're reading it as sort of a, I mean, I, I get why you're reading it as sort of a queer metaphor there, and I, I buy it. It's one of the things that I didn't like before because I wasn't reading it that way. I just read this entire two-page sequence as overwritten again trying to do the 60s thing too much where everybody everybody has to explicitly thought balloon yeah, their yeah. personal trauma <laughs> because um, I saw Rachel do that and then I used to see Kurt, uh, Kurt saying oh she's going right to Brian after all the hell that he put her through and then Brian does the romance comic thing of he's just mean for no reason he storms off and then slams the door <laughs> I don't know why <laughs> he should he just got laid he should feel calm <laughs> you, <laughs> <laughs> you know <laughs> Like, I don't, I I have no idea what's going on here. Um, And then, you know, Kitty has her thoughts that she's, you know, she doesn't know why she's tinkering. She just is. I don't know why she's tinkering either. It doesn't, you know, it's not explained later. So I don't know. The gadget makes no sense. Yeah. Yeah, But all of it's just like sort of the, I want to make sure that I do the internal monologue for every character. And then we get Megan, then we get Kurt again. Like, it came across as very weird to me. So that's why I blew it off. But if I isolate just the Rachel one, I think I, I see, I see your point.
1: Yeah, I mean, I should have opened my argument for why this issue, I don't want to say good, but like appeals to me because it is like, it's like a Silver Age Excalibur issue. If Excalibur had been written Uh in the Silver Age, this is what it would be. And I think I'm responding to that because I love Silver Age goofiness. Mm -hmm. And like, yeah, then I, I anyway let's talk a little bit about the villain as like kind of our last kind of thing so demon druid and why he's great and i'm saying that kind of as a question but kind of as a statement because i don't know we haven't had a lot of real like villains of the week in excalibur really we've had like such interconnected stories that kind of build i mean we have had that in terms of the crosstown caper but even then it's usually sort of across a couple of issues or something but this is like a true villain of the week and i was curious about our responses to that how do we think about the villain of the week sort of as a storytelling convention is it a storytelling convention that's effective in terms of those things that we expect villains to do like we've talked in previous episodes about a villain should help us understand the heroes better and like Mm -hmm. does this villain help us understand the heroes better and i'll come to you first asha about it i mean you're new to these characters pretty much everybody is new to demon druid this is like his second comic book appearance i want to go (laughs)
2: last
1: but like did he help us understand the characters at all here like was his presence in the narrative effective on any level Mm. well okay i'll start off to say that i do like villain of the week vibes i mean
3: i like star trek i like that kind of revolving (laughs) feeling that you get with certain kinds of storytelling and i do think that he played into the themes pretty well like i think that one i really enjoyed his character design i thought that his luscious locks were were (laughs) wonderful i also found his powers kind of hilarious but i do think that what he does is you know he we already talked a little bit about how he has a certain kind of monstrosity that megan is attracted to but also fears we also get the way that he kind of brings around the theme of Things are not always what they seem. Don't judge a book by its cover, etc. The way that the actual solution is this plot twist. We can just, you know, open a door for him and let him out Mm -hmm. and we don't have to fight him at all. So I thought that that fit with the theme that seems to me pretty prevalent in this comic around people who can look scary but are actually normal beings trying to get by, even if they come across as aggressive. So, I mean, I, like, I, I do think that he kind of served as a useful parallel to most of the other characters,
1: yeah, other thoughts on Deep and Druid? I like that,
0: yeah. Well, maybe just to, to add on to that, I think one of the things that he brought out in this narrative in particular was exactly as Asha said, the contrast between Brian's approach and Phoenix's approach. And we've we've talked before about who's the real leader of Excalibur. And we've also entertained the theory that, that a lot of them are humoring Brian. Um, and I, I loved how quickly and easily Rachel dropped him. Yeah, uh, that he, was very enjoyable. Cover, the cover you know, promise of this big fight. And it's just like, no, sit down uh and she (laughs) takes them out and demon druid gave us kind of a good excuse to explore that both as an ideological question and as a question of you know who is the real power in excalibur
1: yeah and i mean even the dialogue of the face-off that they have there there's no way i'm going to let a child stop me humiliate me i am a child of the stars forget the speeches and get out of my way or else don't even try and then yeah just easily drops (laughs) (laughs) them I mean, yeah, seeing, like, Rachel face up against sort of a cosmic being like Demon Druid, who, like, I think he's technically an Eternal or something. He has, like, a complicated, like, (laughs) yeah. So so
2: the first time I read this, I looked at this. I I mean, I remember when this book came out. And I was like, why is this guy? This is clearly the Magus, Adam Warlock villain. But he's not. And it's weird because Ron Lim's drawn the Magus before. Mm -hmm. And he draws him exactly like that Uh, it it really looks it's basically the same costume it should be a lightning bolt instead of a constellation and and other than that ron Lim's version of magus looks very much like this so that confused me at first but i never bothered to read the original demon druid story until this morning, <laughs> when I was like, you know what? I've got Marvel Comics Unlimited now, something that I did not have access to when this came- comic came out in 1990. So I I don't have to go track down Thor number 209. I can just go read it right now. So I did that today. And it's um, it's this story. It's exactly this story. <laughs> um, I mean, <laughs> like to say that this story is written, um, is generous. Uh, what actually happened? Oh, wow. <laughs> what, wow. what actually happened is they took the Thor plot yeah. and they inserted Excalibur in it instead of Don Blake. So in the original story, Demon, I mean, it's not exactly the same because they tried to get the Excalibur sort of drama going on and like their their subplots and everything. But the original story is Don Blake who is sort of he is the secret identity of Thor and whether they're the same character or not is sort of weirdly ambiguous at this point in continuity. But Don Blake is looking for the Lady Sif and so as Thor, he flies to England. Just, he thinks maybe she's there. She's not, but he thinks maybe she's there, mostly it was Jerry Conway. Apparently, wanted to like write really badly stereotypical accents. It's <laughs> it, it's bad, <laughs> um, um, but it, it, you know, there's a lot of governor and and cheerio mate type stuff. <laughs> <laughs> And so Thor goes there, turns into Don Blake, and is just hanging out at a pub when the demon druid attacks, or sort of. The demon druid's walking to Stonehenge, and so Thor goes to attack him, and they fight a bunch. And then this um, this Scotland Yard detective, because of course there's a Scotland Yard detective, because it's in Britain, you see. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The Scotland Yard detective realizes that, wait a minute, the demon druid's not actually attacking anybody He's mostly just walking. So they let him walk. It's like, no, stop fighting him. It turns out he's just trying to get home. So so they let him walk into Stonehenge and he walks into Stonehenge and um, raises his arms up. And then the magic power of Stonehenge beams him back to his home reality. And that's the end of the story, much like what happened here. Yeah. But, you know, with different interpersonal drama. But it's really exactly this story. And I didn't know that until I bothered to read it again today. It's very much a ripoff, which makes me, I don't know what's going on here. Like Higgins, is not it's not a sequel because the druid in this story sort of is appearing for the first time, but it references it, which is why I knew how to go find it, right? So it's not like, you know, he has already gone home. It's very bizarre. It, It was a weird choice, and I don't know what he was going for. Other than I imagine Michael Higgins said, you know, I read this story back when I was a kid and I want my own shot at it. So I'm going to just do it again. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah,
1: again, that fan fiction element. But I mean, you've said in the past, Mav, that like a villain is whatever you need for that particular story.
2: Yeah. And, and, and and it really is. Like, I think that he had some I think he had some drama that he wanted to do. And this was the convenient story. So he just dropped it into a plot. I Like, it, it really does read like that. And it's a um, character with nebulous
1: powers that can, like, do different things depending that on what we no need one cares him to about. do. Right? no one
2: has seen him at this point nobody had seen him in 30 years and we're we're never going to mention him again (laughs) so it's fine (laughs) it's just like yeah let's let's just do this
3: I guess the other kind of useful thing maybe that he does is he has that line about how Kitty is but he senses something special in her about Mm -hmm. the greatness men might achieve like that seemed to me to be an obvious bit of foreshadowing I don't know what foreshadowing but it seemed like on his way out he had to
1: toss a little plot in there I mean certainly like in a general sense, Kitty is often sort of set up as like the next generation leader of the X-Men. So that could be a little, a little aside oh, okay. to that, but um, any final thoughts? Because like, I think that that was like probably as much attention as like demon druid deserves as a character, <laughs> <laughs> but any things that anybody else is like desperate to talk about. He apparently about.
2: has more appearances. I just, I just, I just yeah. Googled him. He's got, I've got to go. I'm going to collect all of the demon druid issues. <laughs> that's like my new, that, that's my new thing.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I read his backstory and everything and in, in, in time for the in time for the episode so he does have like a bunch of other things going on like I shows mean, up in
2: wonder man yeah that's
1: exciting. yeah like he goes he's <laughs> marooned in the past and then becomes like a god of people and this is the stonehenge thing anyway doesn't make a lot of sense but like anyway
3: no in terms of the just like last thing that we want to say i did think it was kind of hilarious that the two characters who are introduced in the beginning are purposefully made so annoying that once they get turned into rocks, you don't care. I mean, you, like you couldn't have put sympathetic characters in that position because then you'd spend the rest of the story being like, are they going to stop being rocks? But you don't mind because
1: they're very annoying.
0: But it's a nice vision of where a toxic relationship takes you into the
1: future of your marriage, right? <laughs> That's true, but like that's making me think it's even like more smart than it is because that's another like parallel. <laughs> I don't know if that's serving your argument or undercutting it, Andrew. That this uh, issue undercutting, is. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Any final thoughts from you, Andrew?
0: Uh, no, I I think you've sold me on a few aspects of this issue that I was maybe no, 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 no,
1: no. I don't have. to I still sell don't you on like it. the
0: Megan portrayal, but
1: I think there's yeah. definitely
0: some interesting ideas in play.
1: Mav, final thoughts.
2: I don't love this book. It's not offensive to me. Some issues of Excalibur greatly offend me. Nazis. You know, (laughs) like, like it's not, it's not, I don't find it offensive. I find it kind of a, it's a filling issue, you know? Like, that's what it's for. It it did its job of filling in a a month where they just didn't want to skip things. This is a thing that Marvel and DC Comics used to do. We were behind. We've got to catch up. Just toss a, a, you know, a guest team out there and get something publishable that we can just kind of, you know burn a month on and it it was fine for that and i i think um like andrew you've convinced me that there are things that show merit um we didn't talk much about it but i love everyone's sexy pajamas in this i mean i like kurt has two different (laughs) sets of pajamas he's got like the vin diesel esque, you know wife beater (laughs) outfit at the beginning and then he's got like the buccaneer one later and um and i actually do love Satter courtney's you know i'm going to seduce brian outfit like i i think that is it a seduction
0: outfit though because it feels like it's a done deal at that point
2: (laughs) no it it is it is a done deal but like i (laughs) i like i i like ron Lim as an artist yeah so what i like about this issue is that he was clearly given the time to explore his vision of what these characters would might be rather than like i seriously feel the last time he did it he was told to draw 22 pages in 24 hours yeah for sure like it really felt rushed. It, it felt like a 24-hour comic. Like, you got 24 straight hours to finish this job. And here I felt like he could um, spend his time. And, you know, I recognize who characters are supposed to be. It's like, oh, you've got, you know, uh, this is not Alan Davis's take on what Nightcrawler looks like. But I get what you're doing. I get what you're doing with Megan. I get what you're doing with Brian. So I, I, I do appreciate things about this.
3: Oh, that has reminded me of one like portrayal of Nightcrawler thing that I wanted to point out that I thought was interesting which is the panel where he's in bed thinking about Megan in that picture he looks like Burt Reynolds like he doesn't look like Nightcrawler (laughs) I think there's something interesting about the fact that his hands are under the pillow you can't see his tail you can't see his feet it's like the it's all blue so you can't tell that he has blue skin so there is something kind of strangely normalizing of him in that moment i guess
1: yeah i mean that's an uh this is a too big of a thing for me to get into at the end of the episode but i do have questions and issues about the way kurt is sexy like in general in terms of like is he sexy through his difference or is he sexy in spite of his difference so we brought this up sort of On past episodes and something obviously this is me we're going to bring it up again but it is interesting when people kind of make him look more normal because he has to be sexier in that moment and I have feelings about that understandably it is interesting that you brought up Burt Reynolds comparison though since he has famously um, imitated Burt Reynolds in a comic in the past which many of our listeners will already be aware of but (laughs) interesting thing to bring up Merlin, if only you're at my side, my old friend, to give me courage. There are no war tricks that will fool Mordred
2: and
0: Morgana. More than I ever did, I need you now.
1: Where are you, Merlin? If only you could see me wield Excalibur once more. I think we will wrap up there other than to say asha thank you so much again for joining us and to ask whether you have work that you would like our listeners to check out or if you would like them to find you online where can they find you um
3: i generally don't need to be found but i will plug the fact that i have a a poetry chapbook that's out in the world called mundane majestic uh it's about travel i think it's pretty funny so those are maybe slight overlaps with the topic of this podcast (laughs) podcast <laughs> um so yeah th- that poetry collection's out uh on on Struther Press and um other than that I try to avoid being seen on the
1: internet <laughs> fair enough Asha thank you so 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 much for joining us Next in one week's time, we will be on to episode 22. We'll be back on the cross time caper, discussing Excalibur 21, Crusader X, featuring another brand new world, chock full of brand new doppelgangers and. The debut of penciler Chris Wozniak, who will be doing a few issues of the series, so you better get used to it. As usual, we'll have a great guest to help us process it all. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which you can find via our website or the Vox Podcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter, at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you andrew and Mav, for another transporting conversation thank you asha for humoring our digressions thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought for music for our truly epic theme song play us out